0: We started last week with a new series called Bystander. We're looking at some things that John, one of Jesus' original disciples, um, wrote down for us. Last week, we looked at his first miracle, which was in the city of Cana. And remember that I told you about the cold case detective, J. Warner Wallace, who applied his skills to whether there was even a God or not. He said, you know, I, I decided that I was going to look and see what the evidence for God was, and he said, if, if there is a God and if God created the world, the, the universe, then he, he, his quote was, then lesser miracles like healing the blind or, or turning water into wine, those are not even that impressive compared to what God did in creating the Universe. He just spoke it into existence, and through his investigation, using his homicide detective skills, he became a, a, a Christ follower because he said, "There's so much evidence." So he said, "Just consider the evidence." Well, last week's miracle was one of, um, of time. Jesus, Jesus sped up the process. God is always turning water into wine through the process of a grape growing season. What Jesus did was in an instant, he turned water into wine to meet a need, and it was a sign that proved that he is God's son. Today's miracle is a, is a miracle of both time and space. Jesus speaks... Uh, a miracle today. It happens immediately when he speaks it. He does it at a, at a distance of 20 miles. It's remarkable, and there is no rational explanation for this miracle today. Now, in studying for this message, I came across a guy named Dr. Francis Collins, and here's a picture of him. Um, I had no idea who this guy was. So I heard his name and started reading about it. Well, here, I I read up about him. He is the director of the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. I had heard about his project way back in the 90s. It was called the Human Genome Project. This was was a, a universal, not a universal, an international study to map the genetics of the human body. This was an incredible study that was done and it took them about 13 and a half years to finish the study. But what they did was they found out Dr. Um, Collins and his team discovered that there are 3.1 billion letters inside of every single cell in your body. Now, I I went back and I looked at his book that he wrote, and let me see if I can still have this up here. He said, if you were to read one letter, a live reading of one letter of that code, 3.1 billion letters at a rate of one letter per second, it would take 31 years, even if reading continued day and night. If you were to print out all of these 3.1 billion letters on regular with regular font size on normal bond paper and you bound them together it would result in a tower the height of the Washington Monument for one of your cells. This was a remarkable discovery when they finished it and what it helped us do was it helped us understand the body, the makeup of the body and what it really helped us do was was predict how diseases would impact the body. So you have all of these cells and and he and his his team discovered this and oh just a little side note, if you've heard of uh, Dr. Fauci, you know the guy the the epidemiologist, you know you've heard of him, you know, no masks and then one mask and then multiple masks. Anyway, Dr. Collins is actually his boss, just a a useless bit of information. My point is Dr. Collins is a remarkable scientist. He is incredibly intelligent. When he was 27 years old, he was working a residency in North Carolina. Day after day in residency, they would go around, they would check on patients, and they would take notes, they would write things down. And partly because he was in Carolina, North Carolina, he kept running into Christians who kept having the same type of story. They were in the hospital with incurable diseases. They could be treated and made comfortable, but they were dying people. And they kept talking about how they were going to die and they were going to go to heaven and they were going to be reunited with people that they loved. And because he was not raised a religious man, this was really unnerving to him. It bothered him. He wrote a book called The Language of God. And in the book, he says this, if faith was a psychological crutch, it must be a very powerful one. He said, if it was nothing more than a veneer of cultural tradition. Let me just stop right there. He's saying, if if this is just what Southern folk do, you know, if this this faith thing, if it's just just rednecks in East Texas, if it's just mountain people, if it's just what those people do, he says, it doesn't make sense because all of these people are dying. They're not getting answers to their prayers. So he goes on and, and he says this. Um, If faith was a psychological crush, why, here's this question, why were these people not shaking their fist at God and demanding their friends and family stop all this talk? This nonsense about a loving and benevolent supernatural power. They're dying and God's not answering their prayer and yet they still have faith. This was, this bothered him so much. And then one day, he walks into a room, a lady he'd talked to many times before. He knew she was a Christ follower. She had told him all the things that Christians believed, and she asked him a question. She said, I've told you what I believe. Doctor, what do you believe? And this question ended up changing his life. Here's what he says. I just turned red. I kind of stammered, well, I'm not really sure. Now look at this last sentence. Faced with my willful blindness. Will, he, he made a choice to be blind, he said. Faced with my willful blindness and my arrogance, I began a journey. He decided to see what could be discovered, what could be found, what could be learned. This scientist discovered that there's so much evidence for the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. The evidence was so compelling that Jesus lived, he was who he said he was, the tomb was empty, that he became a Christ follower, wrote a book called The Language of God. And and so he didn't even know there was evidence until he looked and found there was evidence. There's so much more that he didn't even know. This series is all about there is evidence to, to prove that Jesus is who he said he was. The question is will you consider that evidence? See, Christianity's never been about blind faith, never. Not one of Jesus' original followers followed because of blind faith. They all followed because they saw Jesus, they heard him, they touched him, they heard what he said, they saw what he did, and they said, this is God's son. It's their eyewitness testimony. And I know that because they wrote it down for us and they told us this. Now, John, who we're talking about, Um, he wrote the book of John. We're gonna call that the plain book, all right? Just John, just John. He also wrote three other books in the New Testament and we're really creative. We call them 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Not plain John, we've got three more Johns, all right? All written by the same guy. I want you to see what he said in 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life, the life appeared. Now, if you remember from last week, I read to you in the first of John, plain John, plain John, it says, in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God and, and the word became flesh and made us dwelling among us, all right? So we're talking about Jesus. when he's talking about here concerning the word of life, capital W, that's Jesus. The life of Jesus appeared. We've seen it, we testified to it, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. If you were just to read that, if you're on a jury and you just read that, would you deduce that that what he's writing down is secondhand information? Or would you deduce this guy was an eyewitness? Hello? Right? It's a little warm in here, so is everybody asleep? Y'all hadn't slept all week? I don't know what's going on. Okay. <clears throat> all right, I'm working hard. We would think that this is eyewitness testimony, and that's what it was. All of the, when he says these things we have heard, who's he talking about? Peter, James, John, all the original apostles. He says, all of us, we saw it, we heard it. John was a fisherman. He was the son of a fisherman. He met Jesus and he would say to you, Jesus became my rabbi and and I, I, I learned to follow him. And then he says, I wrote all this stuff down for a reason. Here it is, the last two verses in the book of plain John. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. Here's his agenda that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. He doesn't just want you to know what happened, he wants you to know why and he wants you to believe. Now, he also gives us his theme statement in 1 John. 1 John 5:11 through 13. I actually read these uh, quoted these words to some missionaries who were standing at my front door one time. We were we were having a slight argument over over whether you could know that you were a Christ follower. I said to them, if you were to die tonight, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? They said, oh, no, no, you cannot know. There's no way you can know. And I said, interesting. Your own Bible, they're they're not Christians. Your own Bible, because I knew their Bible better than they did. Your own Bible says these words. This is the testimony God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Check this out. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may what? So that you may know you have eternal life. I said, how do you answer that? They couldn't answer that. They said, oh, we'll get back to you. As they walk down, I actually said this to them as they're walking down. I said, one second after each of us dies, we're going to know which one of us told the truth. And I said, you're gonna remember this day because you're walking away from the truth and you're gonna wish you had given your heart to Jesus Christ so that you could know. Now, John organizes just John around seven miracles. He calls them signs that point to the reality of who Jesus was. So we're in John chapter four, verse 46. We're gonna read A, 46A just means the first half of the verse. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee. Does that sound familiar? Anybody that was here last week, does that sound familiar? Cana in Galilee, what happened there? He turned water into wine. In case you didn't remember, John tells you where he turned water into wine. Now, let me just tell you, between chapter two, which we looked at last week, and chapter four, all kinds of really interesting things happen that you need to read about. Um, Jesus goes from Cana all the way down to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, he gets in all kinds of trouble because he's always getting in trouble in Jerusalem. That's where they were going to kill him, and and his disciples are like, ah, let's go back to Jerusalem. He's going to stir up some stuff again, so he goes down to Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. He actually does this twice. He does it once at the beginning of his ministry, once at the end of his ministry, so in John chapter 3, he goes and he cleanses the temple because he says, you are robbing people. You're ripping off poor people who are coming here to worship, and he chases them out. Well, that ticks off the religious leaders that got their attention. He decides to leave afterwards, and, and before he leaves, Jesus participated in the very first episode of Nick at Night. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Go read John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to him at night. Thank you. I'm not sure if y'all have thought out yet, so we're gonna, I'm going to keep working. I'm, somebody may have to get me a towel. I'm going to have to work harder today. He tells Nicodemus those famous words. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. All right. Great, great story. Then on his way back to Cana, he actually goes through Samaria and he talks to the woman at the well. She becomes a believer. She goes and tells the town. The whole town comes out and the whole town says, we believe because of her testimony. Now, because we've heard you, we believe that you're the son of God. It's an amazing story. Well, now we get back to John chapter four. So he goes to Cana. And then verse B, second half of 46 says this: There was a certain royal official. What what kind of official? That's important. Remember that. There's a royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now I want to I want to point this out. The first miracle was at a joyous occasion, a joyful occasion, right? It's a wedding. It's a celebration. It's a week long party. The second miracle he performed in Cana, not the second one he performed in his ministry, but the second at Cana was a heartbreaking occasion. And I want you to realize that Jesus gets involved in celebrations, Jesus also gets involved in someone's sickness. Now, I wanna show you where this is. Uh, Put that map up there if you would, Gary. Okay, so we're here in Cana, you see, Jerusalem is way down here. It's a long ways. This is a big effort anytime he and his disciples went from Jerusalem to Cana back. Now, Capernaum, we're going to talk about Capernaum in just a minute. That's where this royal official lived. Capernaum was Jesus' adopted hometown. It's one of my favorite places to go to in, in Israel. Um, it's, not a, it's not an organized city. It's all ruins. You can see Peter's house. You can see a... a um, a church that they built over Peter's house. It's really bizarre. It has a glass floor, and you look down, so in the middle of church, you know, you can see where, where Peter used to live. It's kind of strange. But it's right on the northern shore of the, the Sea of Galilee. And Sea of Galilee is one of my favorite places in, in Israel. Thinking about all the things that Jesus did. Well, Jesus, his his hometown was Nazareth, but he did most of his ministry in Capernaum. Now, so we're over here in Cana. It's about 20 miles. And and just, you know, being curious, I thought, how long would it take to walk there? Um, If you were to walk a normal, it says a normal stride, I don't know what that is, it would take you somewhere between five and six, maybe seven hours, depending on how big your stride is to walk there. But this guy was a royal official, so I feel certain a royal official didn't walk anywhere. He rode in or on something, so he's going to go see Jesus. Now, we don't know a whole lot about him. We know he's a royal official. He was probably an official in Herod's court. Um... He was a man of high standing. He may have been a Gentile. We don't know for sure. But what we know is he didn't know who Jesus was. He just heard about him and, and his faith, this faith, he's going to teach us a lot about faith today. All right, verse 47. When this man, the royal official, heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him. The Greek means he repeatedly pleaded, begged with him to come and heal his son who was close to death. At this point, this man had a crisis faith. This is where this first step of faith, a crisis faith. And I don't know if you know this or not, but only people who are desperate pray. Pray. Only desperate people really pray, right? When things go well, we tend to say, oh, yeah, things are going great. Thank you, God, for the food. You know, uh, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for the food. These these little generic popcorn prayers. But you let a crisis hit your life, you become desperate. This man was desperate. On this day, he's a father who's afraid his son is going to die. And on this day, he doesn't care about his position. He doesn't care about his servants' money or power. He knew that Jesus was not popular with the religious leaders, but when your son is Dying, popularity's not real high on your list. Are you with me? And so I just wrote this down here. It's in my notes, it's on your listening guide. It's my favorite saying from my favorite seminary professor, a man who was very acquainted with this. Suffering drastically reduces your wish list. Some of you this week were without power for many, many nights. You didn't care about a whole lot of things but staying warm, right? Some of you were without water. We're without water. We melted a whole bunch of water. We have about forty gallons of water to flush the toilet, and it's such a great thing to get to do, right? You know, to go pour water in there and flush the toilet because we got rich people problems that we expect water to come out of the tap, and when it doesn't, oh no, right? You with me? I mean, I'm I'm, I'm complaining. Okay. Suffering drastically reduces your wish list. You don't care about popularity. Your son is dying. You think about that. Your child is dying. There's nothing you can do. You become real focused real fast. Suffering leads this royal official to throw all the status symbols of the world down and to bow at the knees of a poor Jewish rabbi. It's a remarkable scene. He could have sent his servants, but when life and death is is in the balance, I don't know many dads that are going to send a servant to ask Jesus to do him a favor. Capernaum, his adopted hometown, Jesus has spent lots of time there. This royal official had heard the stories of incredible things this guy did. And now I'm making this part up, all right? But I can totally see this happening. I think maybe Mrs. Royal official heard that Jesus was coming back through Galilee. And dad, you know this. She looks at him and says, you go get him and bring him here. And Mr. Royal official says, yes, ma'am, right? And I think he rushed over to Cana. He didn't walk. He ran or he rode on something and he beat that horse or whatever until he got there. This very important man, husband, father, had to make a decision. Do I leave my dying son, who I may never see alive again, to go beg Jesus, who may or may not come heal him? He threw it all out. And that's what I want you to understand is a crisis faith is also a very focused faith. And some, I just believe that sometimes God allows, is that not on there? focused faith? There it is. I believe that sometimes God allows crisis. I think a lot of times God allows crisis to come into your life and into my life to refocus our faith. Because we get distracted. And we start saying our problems are big. And we forget that our God spoke the universe into existence. So providing water, whether it comes today or next week or three weeks from now, that's not a problem for your heavenly father. Maybe a problem for the city of Palestine, but not for your heavenly father. He pled and he pled, forget dignity, forget position, forget society, forget theology, forget the world's view. My son is dying, and if you can help me, what's it going to take to get you to my son's bedside? What's it going to take? It's very focused faith. And, And I think if you're honest, a lot of you would admit that the very first prayers you ever prayed were crisis prayers. To whom it may concern, if you're out there, I need you. And if you'll just do this one thing, one thing, I'll serve you with my life. Some people say that and then they turn their back. God saves them. Turn their back. It's not a good place to be. Now, this desperate dad made two honest mistakes that day. First one, he thought that Jesus had to be present to heal his son. And the second one, he actually assumed that Jesus didn't have have enough power to raise his son if his son had died. He didn't know all all of the stories because Jesus had already raised some people. Now, Jesus' response seems very, very insensitive. Listen to what he says. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, but he's speaking to the crowd, you'll never believe. Here's one of the things I think Jesus was telling them. He was telling the man, he's telling the crowd because there's always a crowd around Jesus and he's telling us and here it is. A faith that is dependent on signs is an incomplete faith. And if you're offended by that, let me just point you to the Israelites who were led out of Egypt. They'd seen 10 plagues on the Egyptians I think it was after the fourth plague all of the plagues were on the Egyptians and their little land of Goshen was protected then God kills the firstborn if there wasn't blood on the doorpost and they're led out of they plunder the Egyptians God told them to go and ask your neighbor for stuff and they're like here take all my silver and gold just get out before we die without raising a sword they're led out of Egypt rich they get to the the Red Sea The army's behind him. The Red Sea's before him. What does God do? He parts the Red Sea. And he brings it back across and it kills all of Pharaoh's army. They wander around in the wilderness God provides them manna, this stuff that had never been seen before. In fact, manna means what is it? Because they hadn't seen it before. He provided every day this manna. They would go out and gather. And God said, gather enough for one day. They'd gather enough for one day. If they gathered enough for two days, it would have maggots by the next day. And God's like, remember, one day. Then on the Sabbath, the night before the Sabbath, they're supposed to gather for two days. Well, what about the maggots? Well, God is gonna provide for you. And so it, it, it stayed good for two days until they got back to the, the first day of the week. And then they would gather for one day. And then they complained, we don't have water God brought them water from a rock more than once twice God brought them water from a rock God showed them all kinds of miracles and if signs addicted you to the Savior the Israelites would never have wavered in their faith in God but signs tend to addict you to signs and not the Savior a faith that is dependent on signs is an incomplete faith and so Jesus is telling the crowd he's telling you he's telling us He's speaking the truth. He'd already done many signs. The rest of his life, the the religious leaders had seen at least 10 signs, and at the end, they're still saying, give us a sign. In this instance, Jesus decides to give them a sign that we're still talking about 2,000 years later. Now, the father, he's not put off by this talking about signs. He's like, we've got to go now. Here's what he says. Verse 49. The royal official said, sir... Come down before my child dies. So he's like, talking about theology, that's great, except when your son's dying. I need you to come now. I don't need to have a theological discussion. His crisis faith, his focused faith, allowed him to stay on task, and it led him to the next thing. Now, why did the noble man come to Jesus in the first place? Because he'd heard rumors. This man can do things no one has ever done. When he says things, things happen. In his mind, there's two options. Jesus comes with me, and my son lives Jesus doesn't, my son dies. And I think Jesus smiles because Jesus has a third option. Jesus asked him to do what he's been asking people to do for thousands and thousands of years since Jesus walked on the earth, to trust the testimony of others and then to move on to the next type of faith. Here's the third option. Jesus says, go. Jesus replied, your son will live. My speculation, I think he goes, <laughs> you don't know Mrs. Royal official. She told me to bring you home. I come home without you. There will be two death, deaths today. Jesus like, it's all right, go on. Your son will live. I'm not coming. You go on. And, and isn't this, if you've walked with Jesus at any, any time in your life, any length of time, you often have two options. It's this or this, and then Jesus usually has a third option. It's never on your time frame. It's usually not your answer. It's because he wants to get the glory. He'll never give you his glory. He will provide. He will share his power. He won't share his glory. He does something in a way that you could not have done it so that people look at your life and say, there is a God. You're not him, but you're following him. That's what he wants. Now, often I think God answers us with no. And you like the word no as much as your children do. Right? God, give me an answer. No. That's not the answer I want. No. Or not yet. You like the not yet answer just as much as your children do. Because to a child, not yet is the same as no. Right? (laughs) God says, I'm in charge. I have power. I don't just sprinkle my power around like candy. He works in people who have faith in him. And actually, he works in people who move from Christ's faith to the second part, confident faith. The, the title of this, this sermon is Living As If. Confident faith says, I'm going to live as if Jesus was real, as if God's word has the answers to all of my problems, as if God is real. See, we're told in the Bible never to give up because this world is not there is not all there is. There's another world. I'm supposed to live as if there's another world, which means I'm not going to hold on to the things of this world because they're temporary. I'm supposed to store up treasures in heaven, not in this world. Do you know who's watching your faith? I want you to say no. I'm going to ask you that question again. Do you know who's watching your faith? You don't know all the people that are watching. You don't know who's one day, one week, five years away from accepting Christ because of your faithfulness. You don't know that. But we ought to contemplate it when we're making decisions with our lives. The power of confident faith is living as if God's real. I don't care how much snow is on the ground. I believe that God's real. This nobleman had diminished himself in the eyes of the public by begging. He's not getting what he came for. He's not getting who he came for. So now what? He exhales and he makes his decision, a decision that God's been asking people to make for 2,000 years. He made a decision that changed not only his life, but the trajectory of everyone in his family. He decided to believe Jesus and live as if what Jesus said was true, even though there was zero evidence. He's 20 miles away. How could he know? There were no cell phones. Look at verse 50. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And here's what you need to know about confident faith, how it's different from Christ's faith. Confident faith is free from anxiety. Confident faith knows that 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 says, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. If you're carrying your anxiety, you're disobeying scripture and you're not showing confident faith. He'd heard the rumors, then he met Jesus. Jesus told him to do something. He said, okay, I'm going to do it. Now, i got to tell you this. There's three types of promises in the Bible. You need to understand this. There are general promises given to everyone, everyone who ever lived. Let me give you an example. John 3, 16. I mentioned it earlier. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have, have everlasting life. Whoever means Anybody who asks Jesus to forgive their sins and lead their lives can be adopted into God's family and have eternal life. Not everybody's gonna accept him, but it's offered to everybody. It's a general principle for everyone. Here's another one Psalm 34, one of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Believer, unbeliever, you just put God's word into practice, you'll see he is good. General promise to everybody. Second time of pro- type of promise is only for believers. One well, of the best examples is Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things together for good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purposes. Two things, love God. Oh, I love God. Well, are you called according to his purpose? No. Then that promise isn't for you. It's two. It's a combination. Oh, well, I, I'm called according to, to, to God's purpose, but I don't really love him. I don't love the church. Well, then the promise isn't for you. The promise says God takes good, bad in the life of people who love him and are called according to his purpose, and he works it for good. And the good is he makes you look like Jesus. He makes people realize there is a God who's involved in this planet. It's a promise only to believers who are following Jesus and doing what Jesus has called them to do. There's another promise that's, that's just for believers. I love this one, Hebrews 13:6. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals? I love it when the Bible calls us mortals. Because this verse says, what can mere mortals do to me? You're a, you're a man or a woman. Started to say a chick or a dude. I'm not supposed to say that anymore. You're a man or a woman. What can you do to me? You're mortal. The Lord is my helper, helper. He's immortal. And if he's my helper, what can you do to me? You can kill me? So I get to go be with him. I get to see mom, dad, and Cheryl, my sister. You can torture me. It's just temporary. I get to go to heaven. What can you do to me? I can talk bad about you on Facebook. (laughs) Knock yourself out. Ain't going to be Facebook in heaven. Praise God. (laughs) So there's general promises for everyone. There's specific promises for believers. Now, here's the third one. Specific promises only to the individual in the scripture to whom they're given. Let me give you an example of that. Abraham was promised... That, that he would have a, 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 an incredible amount of descendants and the whole world would be blessed through him. That promise was not for you. It was not for me. It was for Abraham. David was promised. He was promised. He was promised that the child born out of an adulterous relationship would die. I don't hear anybody claiming that promise. It was specifically for David. God says, you have defamed my name. You have profaned my name. So the child will die because of what you have done there's specific promises and this was a specific promise to this royal what was he official and Jesus said go on your son's going to live and he healed him from 20 miles and this is what I want you to know distance has no meaning in the presence of the eternal he can heal you anytime any place from any distance this is my favorite part of the story John 4:51 while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. Check out what he does. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, stop right there, stop right there. Please tell me you notice the difference. In the urgency, when he goes from Cana from Capernaum to Cana, he was moving. And, and I'm going to show you. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. It was the exact time Jesus had said, now here's the deal. If Jesus healed him at one in the afternoon and it took a couple of hours to get from Cana back to Capernaum, don't you think homeboy could have made it? But Jesus, somehow there's an instruction that's like, hey, don't even worry about it. Your son is well. This dude is taking his time on the way home because he has such a confident faith that what Jesus said is going to happen. Do you see this? Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father realized that it was the what? exact time this is a miracle of time and space at which jesus had said to him your son will live so check this out so he and his whole household believed there were two miracles that happened that day the royal official's weak faith was made strong oh and his son was healed and it led to the next step confirmed faith Christ's faith, if you follow through, it's going to get to confident faith. If you follow that, it's going to get to confirmed faith because God can be trusted. Can you imagine the chill that went down his spine when he said to the servants, because you know the servants were moving to get to him to tell him good news. He's moseying home. They meet somewhere in the middle. And he says, what time? Chills went down his spine. Tears probably came down his cheeks. And I'm guessing at this point, he spurred the horse and hauled it home because he wanted to see his boy alive, right? (coughs) He gets home and and Mrs. Royal official says, it's a miracle, and he's not even surprised. He already knows. He knew when Jesus told him. And she goes, oh, by the way, where's the rabbi? He tells the story and the whole family believe because that leads to the next step. Crisis faith leads to confident faith, leads to confirmed faith, which leads to contagious faith, and it's where God wants you to be. He wants your faith to be contagious. Now, check this out. The one who spoke their son well, I believe, is the one who spoke their sins away. Jesus can heal the body. He can heal the soul. And I want to remind you of this. That boy eventually died. Every physical miracle that healed someone, that person died. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Lazarus died again. And that's because the best a physical miracle can do is postpone the the inevitable. Only salvation of the soul is an eternal miracle. So let me ask you, let me ask you this. Which was the greater miracle that day? The healing of a sick boy? Or the healing forever of the father and the whole family? Which was it? Only salvation of the soul is an eternal miracle. And can I tell you this? I'm going to tell you this. I don't know why I asked permission. I'm going to tell you this. Churches forget this. We get all wrapped up in physical garbage, not just sickness. I get that. But we get wrapped up in the here and now. The reason we exist is to reach people who are far from God. The church is the only organism on the planet that exists for people who aren't here. The moment you start thinking this is your seat, this is your place, and and nobody better sit in your place is the moment somebody ought to slap you in the face. Literally. Maybe not. We'll get in trouble for that. By the way, I've always wanted to do this. I'm going to do a study on this one time because because, um, Nehemiah, at the end of Nehemiah, he said he was so mad at the officials for not doing what they're supposed to do. He said, I pulled out their beards and I hit them in the face. I'm like, God, please let me. He won't let me. I lived at the wrong time. Check this out. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So, the second sign there. He performed all kinds of signs, but John's picked out seven, and we're walking through all seven. So, how many of you have heard the phrase, I need to walk by faith? Most of you? If you've ever been in church, you've heard that. Let's talk about what that means. Walk by faith means living as if. Go ahead, put the first one up there. Living as if Jesus really is God's son. Because is there anything too difficult for him? Is there anything too difficult for him? Do you live as if that's true? No. Walking by faith means living as if God is your perfect heavenly father. Snow Snowmageddon happens. You don't understand why we don't have water. Is God still seated on his throne? Jesus told us to cry out. When his disciples said, teach us to pray, Jesus said, start this way, our father. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, he's about to be crucified. He cries out, daddy, Abba means daddy, God. Jesus taught us, whether your earthly father is worth anything or not, you have a perfect heavenly father if you've been adopted. Walking by faith says, no matter what I face, no matter how many times my child is in hospital, no matter how many times we struggle, I have a perfect heavenly father, and I, and I cannot know the truth of what's happening on this planet until I hear from my perfect heavenly father. Living by faith means living as if, What's the next one? Your sins are forgiven. You don't have to confess your sins over and over and over. Now, you need to confess your sins once, and the Bible says he carries them away. Remember, John said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When you're adopted, he doesn't unadopt you. Now, he may discipline you. If he doesn't discipline you, that means you're not adopted. Living by faith means to live as if your faith, your sacrifice, your service, your generosity are not in vain because they're anchored to the one who rose from the grave, the real one who lived, who walked, who taught, who had eyewitnesses, you live as if. Now, i got to say this. There are two words that cannot exist in the vocabulary of a fully devoted follower of Christ. Notice I, I qualified fully devoted. I'm going to tell you, I don't know many fully devoted followers of Christ because the two words that cannot exist are no Lord if you say no to him he is not your Lord and I've been in ministry 37 years now and what drives me nuts I'm blown away and it's not by people's faith it's by their lack of faith I'll do anything for God but I won't do that I'll do anything for God but I won't do that that's the dumbest song I've ever heard And Christians live it out. Don't ask me to come to that meeting. Don't ask me to come to a rehearsal. Don't ask me to come serve. Don't ask me to do anything. Are you a fully devoted follower of Christ? Yep. Nope. Just get over that. I'll do anything for God, but I won't do that. The church is called the bride of Christ. If you don't love the church, come on. If you don't love my wife, are you and I going to have fellowship? No. Have you met Mrs. Preacher D? No. She's a good girl. Everybody loves Janie. It's the other way around. People all my life. We love Janie, which means we don't love you, but we love Janie. I get it. I get it. But Janie has said this to me. Janie said this to me. If someone has a problem with you, I cannot be in fellowship with them. Because God and you. And I'm like, that's the way it's supposed to be. I chose Well. God is looking for people who have a contagious faith. Are you one of them? At the end of the gospel of John, just plain John, Jesus has shown up at several different times, but Thomas hasn't seen him. Thomas says... I'm not going to believe unless I see the nail prints in his hands and stick my hand into the sword, uh, the spear in his side. I will not believe. And it's awesome to me because one week, the Bible says, one week later, Jesus shows up in the room. It's locked. He walks in. There's Thomas. And Jesus goes, Hey, Tommy, check out my hands. Check out my side. And the Bible says, Thomas goes, My Lord and my God. He believed because he saw, because seeing is believing, right? Jesus says something to him, and he says something to us that is really interesting to me. Check it out. John 20, 29. Jesus told him, told Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Look what he says. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. If you're a follower of Christ, that's you. We're more blessed than Thomas. We think, oh, if we could just see, we would believe. No, Jesus says, I've given you eyewitness testimony bunches of it. Dr. Francis Collins, the the leader of the Human Genome Project, became a Christ follower because there's so much evidence. A homicide detective became a Christ follower. Um, Lee Strobel, he was the, the law editor of the Chicago Tribune newspaper, atheist. He started studying the resurrection, became a follower of Christ because there's so much evidence. There is, there's evidence. My question is, will you consider it? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for electricity and running water, at least in some places in this town. And God, we just pray that we would not be so caught up in the things of this world that we would miss the eternal. Raise up some contagious faith people in New Life Community Church. Whether they're watching online or whether they're here, God, we need contagious people who'll bring glory and honor to your name. Bless us as we leave this place today, we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.